Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, stamps.com is the ultimate no brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM. This episode is brought to you by the Center for Addiction and Mental Health, CAMH. It's never an easy call with so many problems in the world to know where to direct the money that you donate when you want to help out in this world. But what I can tell you is that when you donate to CAMH, you're saving lives. We know about the opioid crisis. We know about the mental health crisis. They are doing the work. Help change mental health care forever. Your support will help CAMH build a future where no one is left behind. Donate at camh.ca slash CanadaLand to help us treat addiction and build hope. This episode of Canada Land is brought to you by Douglas, a mattress that is trusted by more than 200,000 Canadians from coast to coast to coast. It's a great mattress at a very reasonable price point. Comes with a 20-year warranty and a great deal for our listeners. Douglas is giving you a free sleep bundle with each mattress purchase. Get the sheets, pillows, mattress, and pillow protectors free with your Douglas purchase today. Visit douglas.ca slash CanadaLand to claim this offer. That is douglas.ca slash CanadaLand. I don't know what you had for your last meal, but mine was uh, rice noodles stuffed with marinated beef and shrimp and chives. Don't picture like a bowl of noodles. It's that like... You know that one you get with dim sum, the like, um, almost like a cannoli. It's like a flat tube rice noodle that's stuffed with shrimp and stuff like that. Sits in a little pool of sweet black sauce. Very yummy. Anyhow, that's what I had for my last meal. Last restaurant meal before the lockdowns, before masks, before proof of vaccination, before capacity limits, before the cooks and the servers quit, before everything changed forever. That's what I had for lunch on March 16th, 2020 at Yin Ji Chang Fen on Spadina. And I kind of knew that it was my last meal. I mean, it was obvious they were going to be shutting down everything. And Chinatown, I mean, you know, nobody knew what was going on and, and, and Chinatown was deserted. They seemed so happy to see me at the place. I was the only guy eating in there. And yeah, I mean, I, I, I kind of knew that it might be a while until I could sit down in a restaurant again. So, you know, I overdid it. I, uh, I had a bowl of congee as well, which I was less crazy about. And yeah, I mean, you know, the restaurants are back. I've been to restaurants since then, but I don't know. You know, like it feels different. It feels like a simulation of eating in a restaurant, like a restaurant themed ride at Disneyland or something. It's not as fun and I'm eating out less frequently. So, you know, it's been a lot of takeout, a lot of delivery apps, a lot of cooking. So that's good. There were, of course, those few months where everybody suddenly became a baker. But yeah, restaurants, uh, I kind of wonder if they're, I don't know. Finished? A person who has thoughts about that is Corey Mintz. You'll remember Corey. He was the host of our late great food podcast, Taste Buds. He was also once the Toronto Star's restaurant critic. Corey's written for the New York Times, the Globe and Mail, and others. 
And he's written a new book that deals with all of this, about where restaurants are going, if anywhere. It's called The Next Supper. Now, Corey Mintz is also a close friend of mine, so I am not going to be interviewing him today. It's not that I'd be too nice, it's that I fear I'd be too abusive. We all show love in our own way. Our senior producer, however, Sarah Larniuk, she sat down for a meal and a conversation with Corey Mintz in Winnipeg, where he has recently moved for some reason, to talk about the future of the restaurant. Specifically, do they have one? And get this, what you're about to hear was only the third time that Corey has sat down to eat in a restaurant since the pandemic started. Wait for it. This episode of Canada Land is brought to you by Logan Rogers, Alex Goons, Gabrielle Dupuis, David Mazur-Goulet, Laura Kaler, Marc-André Boisvert, Sasha Stregler-Iannoni, and Grant. Hello, I'm Grant, a marketing guy from the Annapolis Valley in Nova Scotia, and I support Canada Land because, as a Maritimer, I desperately need to hear the opinions of Toronto media elites like Jesse Brown. But seriously, a subscription supports valuable media critique and quality investigative journalism, and Canada Land has introduced me to writers and reporters whose work I enjoy. Uh, no, I think we're good to go. Okay, so, what would you like? Here. Can I get the Brussels-style waffle? It may have the turkey chimichiles. Fantastic. So, I mean, a big part of what I was hoping to talk about is, obviously, eating out has changed. I mean, vax cards, masks, kind of freaking out about being too close to the person next to you. Um, this whole experience is different. It is different, and yet it's the same. I mean... I mean, just to get here today, like we, you know, we got in our cars because we live in a driving city and we parked and we put on masks outside the door and then we showed our uh, vaccination card and then we sat down and we took off our masks. We put away, we put away the baggage of the outside world and the sort of new barriers we put up and we're two people sitting down at a table with physical menus ordering food and someone's going to bring it to us. This experience right now feels very similar um, but we're now I feel on we're certainly not the end of the pandemic which may never end but we're on the other side of I think a very transitional phase where we were radically changing the relationship with dining because we couldn't dine at all you know and it was so stop and go wherever you live your city you know, ended dining and then brought it back and then ended again, then brought it back and whatnot. But during that time, we said, hey, I still love restaurants and I don't want to cook for myself all the time. And I want to support the kind of businesses that I want in my community. So for a variety of reasons, we were still doing business with restaurants and restaurants had to find new ways to interact with us because their old revenue stream, which depended on dine-in service, was not sustainable. Maybe if you can take me back to March 2020 uh, and just what was it like for you as someone covering this industry that's been most impacted? What, what was like your first sign that like this was going to upend the entire industry? The weekend of the 14th, 15th of March when, you know, we started to see 
just days or in some cases hours before different municipalities or states or provinces started saying, we're going to ask businesses to close down. And you started that weekend to see people say, we're closing. So that Monday morning, the 16th, I had a call scheduled with uh, Janet Zuccarini, who's a restaurateur who owned and operated in multiple uh, restaurants in Toronto and in LA, but I wanted to talk to someone who specifically could tell me like, LA to Toronto, how do labor laws differ? How do expectations from employees differ? And uh, we had a conference call scheduled with like her and five of her team. And I joined the call. You get this auto message saying like, you're the first one to join the call. And you know, two minutes go by like, you've joined the call, you're the only one here. And I kept going and I was looking at my watch and realizing, okay, nobody's coming on this call. I realized I've got her cell phone number, so I just call her and when she picked up, it was clear like, she doesn't know who I am. She has no idea like why I'm calling. It's been some time since she was focusing on stuff like, my publicist is telling me I have an interview at this time because as she quickly explains, you know, she hasn't slept. You know, I had, I had 10 restaurants, nearly a thousand employees and uh, just getting updates, uh, like I've been, I've been around the clock, not sleeping, uh, trying to figure out what to do. Um, you know, I would we imagine. Shut down and we have yeah. zero revenue. She is on the call with her accountant, with her lawyer. Um, she has a thousand employees in however many restaurants. She just made the decision to close all of her restaurants. She's gone to zero revenue. She's also in the process of opening like five restaurants or something in the next year or two. And she has no big corporate investors. It's all her own capital. So she is way out there. You know, she is like floating in space without a safety net. I think it's the right thing to do. Yeah. Um, you, know, you have to look at what's happened in other countries. And in Italy, uh, you know, they, they had, the country was on the lockdown, but nobody was following the restrictions, right? Yeah. And uh, the only way to flatten this is to stay home. And uh, in China, they only reported 11 new cases, but they, they really took away people's rights and enforced it. So when mm -hmm. I know that, it's like, how do we run this company? I mean, we're going to go today to just take out and delivery, uh, but I'm making plans to close them all down. Yeah, I, I know. I need to know how to how do I financially carry on with zero revenue. And she's just terrified. And I, and I said, like, I realized, like, I've just called you even though we had an interview scheduled, I've kind of called you in a moment of crisis out of the blue. And she was just in a moment of terror and panic that it was clear every restaurateur at that moment was in the exact same boat. And every employee was in, you know, an adjacent boat going, are we still, like, are we in the same body of water? It was, it was a scary moment, all caught up in that phone call. It became apparent that the new job was like, go back. Go back to your notebook and contact every person you've spoken with over the last six months of reporting to see what's going on, how do you feel, what are your plans, how are things in Boston, LA, San Francisco, Vancouver, Montreal, Toronto, wherever. And things were bad all over and people were terrified all over, but it was, it was still that very early period where we couldn't, we couldn't see as the sort of rug and the earth beneath the rug was pulled out from beneath all of us how a sort of resettled landscape would, would look eventually. 
I don't know what everyone else's experience is, but I know that for me, I don't eat out like to the same level I used to. I'll order in much more frequently than I ever would have before. And in Winnipeg, proudly the home of Skip the Dishes, people love to tell you that this is Skip the Dishes home. Um, but how does just the rise of taking meals out change what we actually like the culture of food. I don't even mean like the practical nature of what it means for restaurateurs, but that it's not something that we do to bring us together anymore. It's it's something that you do, you take home to your house where you're not probably inviting people over. Like what what is the different culture there? It's part of the much longer than our lifetimes ongoing depersonalization that we have in our relationship with food. I mean, short term, we're thinking about, we used to go out to eat more. We used to sit down at restaurants with our friends and family more. And the more we order out, of course, we're not saying, hey, come over. I'm going to order some ramen for takeout. Um, we do that for ourselves. And it, it pushes us further away from our friends and family, further away from these places, the sort of cathedral of food that we're in right now. But that's part of like, as this uh, anthropologist put it to us, that's part of a 10,000 year process of removing ourselves from our food source that starts with the invention of agriculture, if I can go a little far back. But essentially, like once we no longer needed to physically live in the place where we foraged for our food, once we could plant food and go live in a house nearby, we got further away from our relationship with animals. And once we like urbanized and moved to cities, we got further away, right? Because 100 years ago, almost half of us, talking about people in North America, worked in some way in agriculture and now it's like under two percent so we move further and further away we order everything by remote we do i mean i'm very happy with click and collect for groceries and i say this as someone who got married in a grocery store okay that's how much i love grocery stores and yet due to the pandemic that became a necessity right um i didn't want to have to pre-vaccine go in a room with a bunch of vaccinated people and put on a mask just to get Pampers and milk. But the ordering takeout from restaurants, it's just, it's part of that long chain of moving away from where we get food, how we grow food, and, and as a result, the way we treat everybody in the supply chain, we have less and less compassion for them. What it means for us, you know, I, I think it's, it's a little myopic, but it's still relevant to say like, we have less meaningful interactions with our community because we have less reason to say, let's go out and eat together. Because when we get to talking about how much we love or we were thinking about that food, then we go on our phones and we go, yep, they're on Uber. Yep, they're on Skip. Yep, they're on DoorDash. Let's just order, right? So that the lure of convenience gave way to that addiction to having everything where we want it, uh, immediately without having to plan in advance, you know, which is another crutch of the sort of post-social media times. We don't have to make plans anymore because we can always say, Man, I'll let you know maybe later after I checked all my other options. And as a result, like, we're further away from all the things matter. Some of it is our, the people in our lives, our friends and family, and some of it is the, is the, the restaurants that we love. Like the one that we're in right now, it's wonderful. And if enough of us said, I don't care enough about going out to eat in that place, I just kind of want their product, and it all became over time this delivery-only thing, then it's one more restaurant 
that is on the chopping block to be gobbled up, I know that's a mixed metaphor, by these third-party delivery companies uh, to be consumed into just like this, this economic system where they only exist as one in a series of options on your phone as opposed to a gathering place in our community, which is something that we value so much and yet I still don't think we've come to comprehend how much we'll miss it when and if it's gone. Do you have specific example? Is there a story you could tell me about what these third-party delivery apps mean to the bottom line of a restaurant and like our weird notion during the pandemic that we were somehow saving restaurants by ordering from these apps? Sure. So you have to take just a couple steps back to, uh, let's say 2016, shortly after the meteoric rise of all these app companies and the conversations that I was having with restaurateurs, which is, hey, I don't want to do this. I don't want to put my food in a box that's going to steam and congeal my fresh pasta, but then it's going to be picked up by some courier who doesn't work for me. It doesn't represent my company and is going to bring it to someone. And if there's a complaint, they're my customer service, this person I don't employ. But I see my sales or my sales growth evaporating at the same rate as their sales are increasing. So even though I know it's a money loser, I guess I'll get on board to try to figure out how I can make it work, given that I see all my peers are getting on board. So I guess if you can't beat them, join them. And you know that is one of the factors that led to the growth of these companies that people are just like, well, either they're one of the companies that's going to list us without consent, or I guess we'll just give consent and we'll get on board and figure out how to make money later. And they weren't able to figure out how to make money labor. The conversations that I was having and writing about for the few years before the pandemic, which was essentially, hey, these tech companies are not good for restaurants, which at the time was still greeted with a lot of, you're a nut, you're a conspiracy theorist. If they weren't good for restaurants, they wouldn't be in business, or the restaurants wouldn't do business with them if they weren't good for them. Uh, you're a crackpot. By May or June of 2020, that conversation completely changed to the point where all of a sudden that story was everywhere. It was, and it wasn't just in food publications, it was in like general interest news stories. We're doing some version of that because, you know, newspapers, magazines, food publications all had to pivot from their top 10 list of places to eat to like, mm, we actually have to write about the economics of this whole industry that is like 5% of our GDP that may be wiped out by the comet of COVID. And we have to pay attention to the lives of workers and the livelihoods of owners. So that's the story right now. And that story bubbled up and really like popped the balloon of public consciousness. But morally, what these companies are doing, in my opinion, is reprehensible. Their business model is parasitic. Their argument is that they grow overall sales, but ultimately, you know, as economists will tell you, don't confuse uh, revenue with profits because they don't grow your actual profits. Well, and I wonder if you think that these changes, if, are they are they permanent? Is this something that is going to stay? I mean, obviously the pandemic is here to stay. So is Skip and Uber Eats and DoorDash, is that is that all like a permanent fixture or is that a temporary fix? The biggest factor I'd say is these big tech companies and their ability to spend money to rewrite labor laws from California to Ontario, wherever you're listening to this. So California effectively passed a law that said, 
all these gig worker, temporary worker companies have to treat their employees like employees, like workers with benefits and job security and such. And so the companies went and spent $200 million to put a bill on the election that they won that said, nah, well, you don't have to do that. And following their victory said, we're going to do this everywhere. And they're already starting to do that. So that's what we see. And when I say the big factors are their ability, meaning their legal and financial ability to do that, and us, the consumers, like our ability or our willingness to either go along with that or fight against that. And that happens on a minor scale in our consumer choices and on a major scale in our voting choices, both in who we elect and if these companies are successful on getting this on the ballot as a ballot issue, as a referent, whatever the law is where you live, that's where they're bringing this fight and us being in the dark uh, makes a difference. Well, and in the book you talk about how uh, it's comparable to the retail sector and how it's almost too late there because Amazon is here to stay as far as we can tell. Um, they told do us to expect a level of convenience that is tyrannical and, and enforces the kind of brutality on the production line. But we've accepted it. Like, we know what Amazon does, and yet people still go home and they order, right? So do you actually think it's too late? Is the third-party delivery service already out of the box? Like, it's a world phenomenon. It's not a specific North American phenomenon. I think the tyranny of convenience is out of the barn, absolutely. We're never going to move backwards technologically. Like, we're not going to get rid of social media. Say what you will about all the problems exacerbated by the social media age, we're not going to... Um, there's a comic book I read a while ago uh, that takes place in a world where some kind of magical bomb goes off that wiped out social media, and it takes place in that world. And in that world, everyone wears a masks because the social media was also dumped into a cloud so everyone knows everybody's secrets. But that's science fiction, right? We're not actually going to stuff the genie back in the bottle. We're not going to go back to calling each other to make plans instead of texting each other at the last minute. Um, but we are still at a precipice about legislating these companies. You know, we, we missed the opportunity with Facebook, right? We missed the opportunity to begin to examine the potential danger of unregulated technology on our society and the impact that it could have on our culture, on the integrity of our democracy. And it's too late to go back. It's not too late with these companies. Uh, they're a little different and they're still just at the early stages of trying to dig their hands into the clay of our labor laws and reshape them in a way that works for them. So they're still trying to do this and we still have a last opportunity to stand against them, but only if there's the political will for our politicians to say, you want to do what now to our labor laws? Well, and outside of the third party delivery system, you've been critical of restaurants and how they pay staff and uh, divide tips, that kind of thing. Is there an influence of the third-party delivery system in magnifying those, or what's the impact there? I think it's interesting. I don't have a complete answer for that, but I think the thing to look at is, you know, pre-pandemic, because of not just the rise of the third-party delivery systems, but also increased cost for labor that was happening, you know, the, the quote, I'm making air quotes, labor shortage, the factors leading up to this 
25% of workers leaving the hospitality industry were well underway five or six years ago. Because of all those factors, we started to see more and more full-service urban chef-driven restaurateurs saying, you know, I was going to open up another restaurant, but instead I'm going to close one of my restaurants and turn it into a to-go meal place. I'm going to turn it into a fried chicken place because the cost of beef is skyrocketing and chicken is kind of staying flat for the time being. So you were already starting to see people adapt to 3PD being just one of the factors that they were going, maybe need to do with less uh, labor cost uh, and having a product that has wider margins. Because if I'm going to need to depend on off-premises sales in the future, then I need a product with a wider than 5% profit margin. I had a follow-up conversation with um, Amanda Cohen. She's one of the chef-driven restaurateurs profiled in the book, and she's someone who's always been super progressive about wanting to do things differently in her restaurant. And she, you know, she got with the program during the pandemic, packaged food in boxes, and I did a story with her for Eater, this recurring thing where I, I break down the unit cost of everything that goes into a restaurant dish, including like the rent and insurance. And we, she just picked a dish that I said, honestly, pick me something that's going to photograph well. So we picked a dish with bright colors, this spinach croque monsieur. And, and we found it to like that she was losing a dollar on every order. Um, and post reopening, she switched her model to paying all of her staff $25 across the board. 25 US, by the way and increasing menu prices. I can't remember how, 20, 30% across the board. Now, given this is a higher-end restaurant, but this is a full-service urban chef-driven restaurant, that's the type we're talking about. And we had a catch-up a couple weeks ago, and of course, I had to ask her, what's in the update? You've been at it six months. Has this negatively or positively impacted your revenue? And she said, we're full all the time, and we've gone from operating at like around a one to 2% profit margin to a pretty steady 7% profit margin. We have a clientele willing, and here's a key, able and privileged enough to pay for what our food costs, including paying all these people a livable wage. This episode is brought to you by the Center for Addiction and Mental Health, CAMH. We hear a lot about the opioid crisis. We talk a lot about the mental health crisis. These are serious problems. These problems affect us all. They've affected my life and my community. They're not intractable problems. I don't know what's going to solve them on a policy level, but day-to-day -day helping people, that's what CAMH does. They do it on the ground when people need help, and they do it through research. The team at CAMH gave our team a tour of their facilities, and we were really just blown away by the incredible heroic work that they're doing every day. They treat everyone with dignity and their research is seeking and finding real solutions for everyone around the world. Help change mental health care forever. Your support will help CAMH build a future where no one is left behind. Donate at camh.ca slash CanadaLand to help CAMH treat addiction and build hope. This episode is sponsored by BetterHelp. Uh, it's amazing the things that we tell ourselves to talk ourselves out of getting help. Anybody who's actually gotten help knows that the process of getting things off your chest, of taking your stressors, your problems, and just like not letting them be bottled up, working through just conveying them to somebody 
half of the battle is just doing that. You unburden yourself. And you know what? If you have a real mental health professional, no, they don't have magic bullets or magic words that make it all go away. But often they can help you see things a little bit differently and guide you to strategies or tools or to a new perspective that actually does help. As the largest online therapy provider in the world, BetterHelp can provide access to mental health professionals with a wide variety of expertise in mental health. Because you listen to this podcast, you get 10% off of your first month at BetterHelp.com slash CanadaLand. That's BetterHelp.com slash CanadaLand. In reading through the book, what's obvious is that like you're making an argument for virtuous dining. You want us to be aware of the issues in the industry. So there's third-party delivery apps, there's labor in treatment of staff in restaurants, and then and then there's even like supply chain. It's a lot for someone to take in and internalize and be like, oh, I just wanted to grab dinner. Like, I don't know. And you even reference that Portlandia episode where like the couple is talking about uh, their chicken and where their chicken came from. Right. So here is the chicken you'll be oh, enjoying tonight. You have this information. This is fantastic. Absolutely. Uh, his name was Colin. Here are his papers. Okay. That's great. He looks like a happy little yeah. guy who runs around. A lot of friends, other chickens as friends. They do a lot to make sure that their chickens uh, uh, are very happy. When yeah. you say they, I mean, who are these people raising Colin? It's a farm that's located about uh, 30 miles south of Portland. And you feel, and you, you have a good relationship with this farm? We I do. But it's not some guy on a yacht who lives in Miami. Oh, who's goodness, no. saying that he's organic. It's just, it tears at the core of my being, the idea of someone just cashing in on a trend like organic. No, I know the type, no. So how is it that people who just want a meal, they want a positive experience and they want, you know, dinner after work, how is it that you think they should go about doing that? It can seem daunting. Shortly after my grandfather died, I was having dinner at my grandmother's house and my great uncle Putty was there. We were talking about food and my grandmother was excited because I was just starting to write about food in my food career and she was going on and Putty said, He's a different generation. He said, food is food. What else is there to say? And then I, my grandmother in the kitchen, she took me aside. She said, Putty's an asshole. Fuck him. I, I think there's the putties of this world. And I think the audience for the book is like, I think a not insignificant portion of our population that likes eating out, loves restaurants, and is already aware that there's a bunch of problems going on there. And maybe they'd like to make dining choices that are just a little bit more informed or they want to make those choices and it's so unclear you know there's no roadmaps the way there are in that portlandia sketch silly as that seemed for like is it local organic sustainable the kind of catchy buzz like what are those buzzwords for restaurants and and if they want to take one thing it's it's in the introduction let go of the idea the customer is always right this is a bad philosophy at least all sorts of bad outcomes but i don't want to overwhelm anyone it's just that if you ask someone about something they're passionate about and you give them a bunch of coffee, they're going to open up, you know, and particularly if they feel like it's, it's dire. Um, all anybody needs to do is care. I mean, I think the golden rule is a pretty good rule. It's just hard in restaurants when we don't know uh, what's going on behind closed doors. I mean, you kind of do conclude that, like, a big part of the problem is that people want the experience, but they're not actually willing 
to pay for what that would look like in an ethical manner. Some people are and some people aren't, which isn't, I'm not trying to avoid generalizing, but I think before writing the book, I probably wrote a lot of articles that for me, it was always, I always felt comfortable blaming the consumer because I felt like when you write for newspapers and magazines, they're often very consumer focused, you know? When I would try to talk about like what's going on with workers behind the scenes, they'd say, this is inside baseball. People want to know where to eat. They want to know how things affect them, the diners. And I, and I would say like, well, maybe if people are just compassionate, that's their entry point to the story. I did, I did find one quote really particularly striking. Having been an unquestioning promoter of food culture for so many years, I am ashamed. I felt like I wanted more out of what you meant by that when I read that. Sure. Well, I mean, when I began my career as a food writer, I was coming off of a previous career as a cook, right? So I've been cooking for six or seven years. Uh, when I interviewed for the job of a restaurant critic, the editor who interviewed me, she asked me, she said, we're done with the interview, but I'm just curious, which is a total scam. Obviously, it's part of the interview. She goes, what percentage of the restaurant you view do you think should be the food and what percentage is, you know, everything else? And I said, I said 75%. And then, and then I went, wait, 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 80. And, you know, if you asked me today, I'd say 51%, not 52. You know, food is essential. It's got to be good, right? It can even have like controlling interest share. But there's so much else going on, not just in the restaurant experience for us diners, the ambiance, the service, everything, but also behind the scene, like the ethical issues contributing to our experience. Are we exploiting people when we dine out? That should be part of the story. But I was coming into food writing from the kitchen where the chef was my boss. The chef was the most important person in the world. The chef was the mother-father person who had taught me how to make risotto perfect every time, how to touch a steak or a duck breast in the pan or on the grill and know if it's rare or medium rare, right? The, they had taught me my, my, my wizarding skills, so I felt uh, not beholden to them, but uh, still in awe of them. And I think I still spent a number of years as a writer, not just sort of blindly supporting them, but also being part of a food media system that prized food as, uh, as entertainment rather than news. And, you know, the, the gigs going, you know, if I wanted to write about food, it was like, well, I had to write a a list of top 10 places to go here or that, uh, or a food trend story. I was never good at those stories. And I always got, I always got so much blowback from editors. They learned very quickly. I can't assign a health trend story to Corey. He's going to send me a bunch of accusatory paragraphs that devalue the food trend, superfood story. I spent a number of years struggling as part of that system, always with those doubts of like, I don't like these kinds of stories, but these are the only kind of the stories I can get assigned until honestly I had grown enough as a writer to learn how to write and report the story that I pitched on my first day at the star, which was why is it that the fancier the restaurant, the less cooks are paid. And only then once I had done that story and felt good about it and I did a good job that my career just took a serious turn of the steering wheel and went hard in that direction not just about labor, but about the variety of uh, systemic issues surrounding food and restaurants. But I, looking back, I can say, well, that was, you know, I didn't go to school. So that was college for me. 
those four or five years were me learning to be a reporter, but there's also some embarrassment and yeah, shame as I was like, oh, I had a column for five years where I got to write about pretty much anything I wanted and I don't think I made the best use of that time. I mean, how many columns did I write about climate change? How many columns did I write about workers' rights in the restaurant field? Some of that was because I was learning about economics and high-rise window washers and, and magic and municipal politics and a bunch of things that have informed who I am now, but there's some guilt there. I guess my last question is, we're now... What? It's about comic books now. <laughs> my last question is that like now we're hearing about the Omicron variant. Already it was hard for a lot of restaurants to get staff back. Where are we left now? Like, I don't know, what are you watching for? What are you expecting from the restaurant industry? Whether it's Omicron or I don't know the Greek alphabet, but whatever the thing is after that. And that other factor is uh, government supports whether they are reintroduced or whether they're tapered off because a, a big conversation over the last two years has been the government essentially has been subsidizing a whole bunch of businesses so they didn't go out of business because a main street anywhere full of empty storefronts and plywood on the windows is effectively the end of our society, right? It means a dwindling uh, employment. It means a dwindling... Uh, tax base, because there's no commercial real estate tax being, you know, it's like the beginning of the, 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 the zombie movie where like slowly all the pieces are falling apart, but at the same time, the government can't just bail out everyone forever. So I feel like that's, as the government in Canada has been tapering off those supports, that conversation is going to be reintroduced. I don't think we have the stomach for going back into the level of lockdowns we had before. I think restaurants are like terrified about like going backwards to having to restrict dine-in service again. But, you know, restaurants are both businesses that exist today. And, and remember every restaurateur, not every restaurateur, but many are also entrepreneurs who wish to grow. And as they grow, they're trying to think ahead. And as they think in the future, they're thinking of, what kind of business do I need to conceive, develop, and build that is pandemic resistant? Ultimately, the reason you write about all this stuff is because you say it's, it's still something you love. It's still something that brings people together. Are you worried about the shifts and the changes that that, that actually becomes eroded? I think it's still there. I mean, you look around this room right now, and it's a Wednesday morning at 10 o'clock in a city that when I moved to, you know, the people that I knew here were like, Corey, you know, this isn't a restaurant town. Uh, but look around this, like every table's full. People are happy. People are obviously, you can see, getting together with friends and coworkers that they don't have other gathering spaces to be in. Um, that is something that people want and love. And the same goes for cooks and servers in these places, right? I mean, when I, a lot of the, a lot of the workers I talked to when they were furloughed, for lack of a better term, like they missed so much their workspaces. Even at the same time as many of them decided, oh, having had a physical mental break for the first time in a decade, I realized I don't want to go back. I can't do this anymore. Um, just as many were going, I, I miss uh, making a fresh dough every day. I miss like handing food to customers who were hungry and then they weren't going to be hungry anymore and the transfer of love 
that happens with that, the sad reality is that we had too many restaurants pre-COVID, but that the restaurants we lost, two-thirds of them were the ones that we don't want to lose. Two-thirds of them were the independent restaurants instead of the chain, uh, full-service, and fast-food restaurants, the ones that oversaturate the restaurant market. The ones that we actually love, like this, are the ones that are endangered. And they're further endangered the more the economic floor is kicked out beneath them. Thank you for your time, and, and thanks for your thoughts. This was delightful. Uh, just the bill, please. Yeah, thanks. That was your Canada Land. If you liked it, you can support it by buying yourself or somebody else Canada Land Premium. Yes, gift subscriptions are available. Go to canadaland.com slash gift or hit the link in the show notes. You can email me at jesse at canadaland.com. I read them all. We're on Twitter at CanadaLand. Our website is CanadaLand.com. This episode is produced by Tristan Capicione. Saren Larniuk is our senior producer, and our managing editor is Kieran Oudshorn. Thanks to Carolina Conrad for allowing Sarah to record in her Winnipeg restaurant, Clementine. Theme music is by so-called syndication is handled by CFUV 101.9 FM in Victoria. Visit them online at CFUV.ca. If you like what we do, please support us. Hey, I need you to pay close attention to this message. It is not an ad. This is about Canada land and this is about you. You need to know that the news crisis is about to get a lot worse. You've heard about the layoffs. We're about to have news closures and it's very likely that we're going to be seeing the defunding of the CBC. Where are you going to get your information from? What can you do about this? You can support Canada land. We need you to. And so for this month and this month only, you can become a Canada land supporter and get everything our supporters get for just $2 a month. That is an almost 80% discount. The clock is ticking on this. It disappears at the end of the month and then we will not offer it. We need your support. We need to keep news coverage alive in Canada. Go right now to canadaland.com slash join. And thank you. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com. Code PROGRAM. A couple of years ago, a cop was shot dead on a deserted pier in the tiny nation of Belize. The only other person there that night was a frightened young woman found covered in blood. By all appearances, it was an open and shut case. But not in Belize, where this woman was connected to a mysterious billionaire who basically runs the place. Justice will let me serve in this case. She's going to get away with it. Or will she? 
White Devil, a Campside Media original. Listen wherever you get your podcasts.